Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. My name is Ted Richards. I had some great feedback on a previous episode of the show where we heard from David Cassidy about the role of an allocation to private equity in an investment portfolio. The episode was really well received, so make sure you check out that episode if you missed it. I thought that I'd invite him back on for another chat. David, welcome back to the Invest at Best podcast. Thanks, Ted. Uh, glad to be here again. For those not familiar, David is head of the investment strategy group at Wilson and has been advising on money for large institutions all over the world for over 25 years. For this episode, I wanted to focus our discussion more at a macro level, in particular, what David is currently seeing in the Australian and global economies and what this may mean for economic conditions in the years ahead. So let's get into it. David, I think if there was a phrase for 2020, it would be unprecedented times, which we, we heard time and time again. And whilst we might still be in these uh, unprecedented times, I feel the phrase of 2021 so far is pent up demand. So this pent up demand, this revenge consumption, as it's sometime, sometimes referred to, what info or data do we have that can demonstrate that it's actually there and ready to go beyond just anecdotal stories? Yeah, well, Ted, I think obviously I think people can relate to the, the notion of having a strong pent-up desire to get to the pub for a drink or to go for a decent meal with their better half, certainly in New South Wales and Victoria. But I think from an economist's perspective, we can see this pent-up demand in something called the household savings ratio. And if you look at the Australian household savings ratio at the moment, it's up around sort of around 11, 12%. And we expect that to, to rise more in the September quarter, given the, the lockdowns and the constraints on moving around and spending. And a more normal savings ratio was probably in the order of four to 4% to 5%. So what we think is going to happen once we reopen again is that some of those savings, that pet up demand, is going to be released back into the economy, particularly in the services sector, where spending has been very constrained because you haven't been able to get to the restaurant or a pub or various sort of personal care services, holidays. So a lot of that money, I think, um, is going to start you know, moving back into the economy back end of this year and, and, and well through 2022. Yeah, quite interesting that the, the household balance sheet gets the opportunity to, to spend up. And, um, you know, David, you're in Sydney, I'm in Melbourne. Um, we, we've both certainly been in lockdowns for a long period of time. Now, if you'd like to hear about the potential winners from the pent-up demand, make sure you check out the previous episode where we heard from John Lockton on this and other aspects related to um, recent reporting season. Now, David, consistent with this view, what we just spoke about, the RBA is also expecting the sharp economic rebound to occur 
especially once New South Wales and Victoria begin to exit these lockdowns. David, has the RBA started pulling any levers to prepare the economy for this rebound? Well, I think, Ted, it's more a case of having the economy primed for the rebound in terms of withdrawing support. We've only really just started to do that very much at the margin. So they've started pulling back on their quantitative easing or bond buying, but only very marginally. And also starting to wind back their emergency bank lending facility. But effectively, they're still in QE mode because of buying bonds. They've still got the cash rate anchored at zero and they've guided that uh, they're going to be at zero till at least 2024. So they're still certainly in the sort of mindset of giving the economy every opportunity to uh, you know, rebound with plenty of vigour. Over, over the coming year. Okay, and the US and Europe have already exited lockdown a period of time ahead of us. Has there been anything that's caught your eye from any of these countries' response to the rebound? Yeah, I mean, it's it has been fascinating. I mean, the economies overseas are generally rebounding back. So, you know, the reopening story is playing out. So the virus is not stopping the recovery. It is proving to be a bit of a handbrake in some cases, particularly in the US, where you've seen a pretty dramatic pickup in infections again. Um, but the recovery is still happening from a, from, a, from a growth recovery perspective. There are also some very you know, interesting and significant impacts on things like supply chains. Um, there's some you know strange things going on with the US labor market in terms of unemployment being quite high in the US at the moment, but also at the same time, job vacancies are at a record high. So I think this is what, what economists would call a lot of frictions going on, both in terms of supply chains and the labour market. We've obviously seen quite a dramatic spike in US inflation recently uh, because of some certain categories of spending. We've had some dramatic price rises, largely because of COVID effects. So these Lots of interesting and probably unprecedented things going on, but the general message is that this story of reopening recovery is largely playing out. Well, I'm, I'm keen to um, speak in more detail about some of the things you touched on there to do with the inflation, but I wouldn't mind just kind of going back to something that you touched on previously, and that is... Um... Uh, the tapering, where we, we hear of government banks implementing this taper. So first of all, can you provide us with a bit more info on what that actually is and also potential risks to this change in strategy? Yeah, well, well, well tapering relates to the, the quantitative easing programs we've seen around the world. So the bond buying programs we've seen in the US, Australia, UK, Europe. Um, and so what tapering refers to is slowing down the pace that central banks are buying bonds each month. So providing incrementally less support to the bond market. So I wouldn't call it a tightening of policy, but I'd call it a, you know, tapering is a gradual winding back of the amount of stimulus in the, in the economy. And we also hear of something called a taper tantrum referenced sometimes in parts of the media. David, could you provide us with a bit of colour on what that is and how it could possibly occur again? Yeah, well, to that phrase, I think, dates back to the last sort of post- global financial crisis cycle back to 2013 when the Fed was also running a pretty aggressive quantitative easing program and the notion of a taper was something new and sort of very unproven. So what happened in 2013 was the, the Fed announced it was going to start tapering bond purchases and the market got very nervous about that, worried that policy was 
going to get quite tight quite quickly, which was, you know, not really what the Fed was trying to do or the message it was trying to convey. And, then, and what happened was bond yields sold off very quickly. That hit equity markets. We had sort of about a, you know, a 10% global equity correction in the space of a, a month or two. So the, I guess the market got very nervous about this withdrawal of stimulus or withdrawal of support. Now, the Fed's been very careful this time around to telegraph that tapering is not really tightening. It's just a little bit less support. It's going to be very measured. And they've also been very clear to disconnect the taper from any rise in the official cash rate. So the, the, the Fed's been quite clear, as is the RBA, that any rise in the official cash rate will come you know, a fair way after the taper and only after the, the economy shown, you know, significant further progress. So I don't think a taper tantrum is likely this time around, not, not in the first instance. There's not to say we can't run into problems with uh, monetary, monetary policy tightening and higher interest rates somewhere down the track, but in terms of the near-term risk of a taper tantrum in the next few months, I think it's pretty low. Dave, you actually um, used a term there that I'm, I'm keen to kind of zoom in on, and, and that's long-term bond yields. For those not familiar with this, why are long-term bond yields important for, for investors to be aware of? Well, I think the way to think about it is, particularly overseas, um, the long-term government bond yield, and that's typically the 10-year the bond reference rate, that very closely sets the underlying cost of borrowing for both businesses and households in terms of mortgages. And it's also the discount rate that people use to value uh, all sorts of assets, really, you know, particularly equities. And it's effectively, because it's the cost of cost of borrowing or the cost of leverage, it's it's effectively the discount rate for the real estate markets as well. So it's it's absolutely central to global economy and also to global asset markets because it does set the underlying discount rate and therefore has a very strong influence on valuation of, of equities and all sorts of other asset classes. So while interest rates have been dropping in, in recent years, that has been reducing the discount rate. If we do see rates increasing, what might that possibly do for the discount rate and equity valuations going forward? Yeah, well, this this has been really, it's been a secular or very long-term trend that interest rates have been broadly trending down now since the early 1980s uh, all around the world, um, both in terms of the long bond rate and the, the cash rate. And that's, you know, for the most part, had a positive impact on valuations that people have been prepared to pay for equities and also, as I mentioned, real estate uh, and all sorts of other risk assets. So I guess it's all about the magnitude and the pace. If that interest rate starts moving up, it's not necessarily a disaster because that will be a signal that confidence in recovery is increasing. But if the interest rate move is too fast or just too too big, it will ultimately start having an impact on, on, on valuations of assets. Um, and, and equities are probably one of the, the asset classes that will feel it relatively quickly. So it's a bit of a balancing act that um, net net, I think, you know, a rise in the long-term bond rate and the rise in the cash rate is probably not a bad thing. If we're still stuck at current interest rates in two or three years from now, we've probably got a, a problem of some degree. But if rates can go up gradually and only fairly moderately, that's probably okay. But if they go up a lot more quickly and, and, and to significantly higher levels than what we're seeing at the moment, 
then that, that could be a big problem for, for 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 risk assets. And what's the long-term bond yields kind of currently telling us about the, the likelihood of a big jump of inflation in Australia? Well, bond yields both in Australia and, and around the world are actually below the current rate of inflation and, and most people's expectations for inflation. So just the way economists couch that is that real interest rates are actually negative. Um, so bond markets are telling you they're absolutely not worried about inflation whatsoever. So from that perspective, um, if we do see you know a sustained pickup in inflation, as I said, we've seen a pretty decent spike in US inflation recently, although it doesn't seem to be coming off the boil now. If you do see a sustained pick up in inflation, that's going to be a very big surprise to the bond market because it's just absolutely not priced at the moment. I've always thought inflation is like the ultimate example of confirmation bias. It's it's very easy for people to pick one example of a price change and, and draw a draw a massive conclusion. Whether you're currently doing a renovation on your home or in the market for a used car, or even those that have been paying private school fees, fair to say you haven't been paying CPI increases over the years. But we're also seeing, you know, in parts of the the market, deflationary prices in tech like TVs, where it's incredible what the size and quality you can get now for the the same price as, say, a pair of shoes. So for those unfamiliar with how they come to a a figure on inflation, David, how is inflation actually measured? Well, inflation, I guess there's a number of different ways you can measure it, but most commonly it's measured through something called the Consumer Price Index. So that's effectively a, a weighted basket of what's meant to reflect the average consumer's sort of spending habits from month to month, quarter to quarter. Um, I think often people look at the consumer price index, you know, which is you know being very very low over the last you know five, 10, 20 years and think, well, that just has to be wrong. It doesn't reflect what I'm seeing out there yep. in terms of what I'm paying. But I think it's human nature to uh, focus on the prices of things that are going up. And as you said, possibly ignore the, the prices of things that have gone nowhere for 20, 30 years or indeed you know, down over that period. So I think it does do a pretty good job of actually mirroring the experience of the average consumer. Everyone's spending habits are a little bit different, but I think the, the construction of you know a CPI basket is fairly, fairly sensible, even though sometimes it feels like you know real world price inflation is higher. I think it's just a, bit, a, a little bit of as you say, uh, personal sort of bias and behavioural bias in terms of thinking that prices are actually going up a lot more than the government saying saying they are. But it's really just a weighted basket of uh, typical consumers' month-to-month spending habits, really. Has the RBA provided any guidance kind of recently on on what inflation might need to look like before they raise rates again? Well, I, I think you've got to sort of reference that in the context of what's happened over the last five years or so. And if we look at what's happened to inflation in Australia versus the RBA stated target, and the stated target is keeping inflation for the most part in a two to 3% band. If you look at the last five years, we've almost 100% undershot that 2% band. So inflation has almost completely been under that 2% level for the last five years. So from that perspective, even though rates have been very low by historical standards, the RBA hasn't met its objective. Um, so from that perspective, with that sort of historical context, I think the RBA is going to be wary of, of that and, and probably keep interest rates lower for longer to try and encourage inflation back into that 2 to 3% band. Uh, and that's consistent with what you know the RBA has been saying. And we heard from the Governor Phil Lowe very recently saying that um, expect 
the cash rate, the official cash rate, to stay anchored at with effectively zero to at least 2024. It's in absolutely no hurry to raise interest rates because it wants to achieve its mandate of you know getting inflation sustainably into that two three percent band. So um, that's the message we're getting from the RBA at the moment. You know things could change, but that's certainly the, the RBA's stated thinking on sort of inflation and cash rates at the moment. Now let's move over to modern monetary theory. I'm sure we could have a whole episode on this topic, but uh, try and just just keep it to one question. But I'm I'm fascinated by how MMT potentially sort of fits into everything that we've spoken about so far. Yeah, well, that's I guess it's a variant of an approach to quantitative easing, and also I think it sort of it, it links sort of monetary and fiscal policy to, together. Uh, I think once again a little bit of historical context when. Uh, QE was, you know, a relatively new concept back post the the GFC in sort of 2008, 2009, and that the US Fed started to institute a, a QE or quantitative easing program. There was a lot of, I guess, media and, and discussion around, well, this is going to, you know, start hyperinflation or at very least, you know, very high inflation. That didn't really happen. Also, it certainly didn't happen. Um, so I think there was a little bit of a misunderstanding of what QE actually is. And I think there was a, a view that it was outright money printing uh, that was, was going to lead to, you know, too much money chasing too, too few goods. Really, QE is just an extension of conventional monetary policy where, you know, the focus in conventional policy is on cutting the cash rate or shifting the cash rate. QE is buying bonds to influence interest rates further out along the yield curve. So getting, you know, fuller control over the price of money by influencing not just the cash rate, but also, you know, five-year money, 10-year money, that, that sort of thing. So that's not really inherently that dramatic. Now, modern monetary theory takes things a bit further in that I think it is much closer to genuine money printing, which I don't think QE as it's practiced today actually is. Now, modern monetary theory actually says, well, you can actually finance budget deficits with electronic printed money, and therefore, effectively, central banks can facilitate as much government spending as really governments want, with the only constraint being how much inflation you're willing to, to tolerate. Now, a lot of people have said, given what happened with QE, post the GFC, there was no inflation, then why don't we just go to a full-scale modern monetary theory approach to QE and just print money and let government spend it? Now, I think the distinction there is that that is genuine money printing. Governments already have, as we know, an inherent tendency to spend too much money anyway under the current policy framework. So going to a modern monetary theory framework to me would be quite dangerous. I don't think there is a genuine free lunch there. And I think ultimately you would probably see a genuine dramatic inflation impact under a modern monetary framework. So it all sounds all right in theory, but I, I, I tend to think it, sh- it shouldn't happen and it won't happen. I think we've probably pushed the envelope far enough in terms of unconventional policy with QE. So I, I'm, I'm not an advocate of, of, of moving to a, a full-scale you know, money printing approach to, to policy. Dave, it's always fascinating to hear the insight and what you've been reading and, what, and what's on your watch list as we spoke about in the first episode, I'm, I'm also keen to hear what's on your other watch list. So um, like I said, at the start of the episode, you're all based in Sydney, you're on lockdown too. So let's shift from financial markets and actually kind of open it up to, to see what else has been on your radar. What else has been on your watch list? Any um, podcasts, books, articles, TV shows or movies of note that's uh has caught your attention? Oh, I guess it's 
it's September, so what, no matter what state you're in, you're sort of watching the, the footy, aren't you? So as a New South Welshman, I'm probably more focused on the NRL. Watch yourself, the, the David. Rugby. Watch yourself. <laughs> but I will watch the uh, I will watch the <laughs> AFL Grand Final. We've actually we've actually moved a NRL game to make way for the the uh, big nighttime AFL game in Perth in a couple of weeks. I'll definitely watch that. But uh, also follow the NRL and the, the rugby over the over the, the next few weeks. With you know quite a lot of games on the agenda. So that's probably front and centre for me to get away from the uh, the uh, financial markets for a little bit. Well, it, the road out of of lockdowns is coming at a at a needed time in many ways. I'm just obviously stating it from a from a, a sporting perspective, but you know the the winter sports in particular, the football codes, they are finishing. You know in the in the next few weeks, so they are something that parts of the community do look forward to on the weekend. So without that, I know that it gets into racing soon, but um, I'm so, certainly not uh, in the racing camp. But what something that's caught my attention, which I, I just thought I'd, I'd share is this TV show SAS, which I absolutely love. I know it's not going to be for everyone, but um, it's where they get celebrities to, to kind of go through a similar process to what they do. They might do in, you know, as part of a, an SAS training process. What I love about it, it's, it's in no ways is it fake reality TV kind of like, I don't know, we're going to throw under the bus with the mask singer or, you know, something like that. You know, it's, it's no facade. It's real, it's raw, and it's very, very confronting. Um, so I, I, I want to do a shout out to the person that cast it. They've done such a, such a good job in that getting some really polarizing choices on there, such as, um, you know, some, some famous rugby league players or even, even the likes of Yana Pittman, who I had a, my own thoughts and opinion on, but when you see them and they're being tested and their character really comes out, you, you kind of realize that um, who that you thought they were is, is incorrect. So, so I'm absolutely loving it. And um, I did I just, watch that the other night. Not really sure why someone put themselves through that, but I guess uh, <laughs> I was quite interesting viewing the, the competitor in me. <laughs> Would love you might to get a take. Call up no, I, I don't. I don't know about that, but I, the competitor in me would love to test myself. Fair chance I'll make a big fool of myself, like many have. But you've got to give these people credit for taking the challenge on. Okay, we might wrap it up there for another episode. Special thank you for David for joining us once again. If you're interested in what was discussed in the episode today, make sure you check out David's great research that he puts together that is available on the Wilsons website. Go to wilsonsadvisory.com.au and it's all under the research and insights tab. If you like this episode, make sure you click subscribe or follow to receive all the future episodes as they're released. And thank you to those that are sharing these episodes with friends and family as well. We're now three episodes in and it's been great to hear who has been listening in. We've already got some exciting episodes planned ahead, which I'm really looking forward to. That's it for this episode. See you next time on the Invest It Best podcast. This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast and no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information and opinions contained therein. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and 
past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.